on our podcast, we've examined a host of changes and reforms that have altered the criminal legal landscape. But nothing, nothing can match the change brought to every aspect of the system by the use of DNA to uncover wrongful convictions. The DNA earthquake. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, and still so incredibly grateful for that fantastic day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. This recording right here, this one brings us to 150 full episodes of this podcast, 150 full-length interviews with some of the most interesting and consequential people in the criminal justice space, judges, lawyers, prosecutors, and defense attorneys, law enforcement leaders, and community advocates. Maybe you'd expect all those, but also formerly incarcerated citizens, advocates for deep change, even revolution in the system, researchers and journalists, even a resident of death row. And we've brought you hundreds more pieces of news and commentary and features. We've been doing this for almost six years now. And before that, of course, I had personally been involved with studying the system uh, as an academic or as a defense lawyer, prosecutor, being an active participant in it, and an advocate for decades. Because I'd been around for that long, one of the things that I brought to the project was a view that included not just what is happening now, but I always hoped a sense of the history of what has happened across at least the several decades that I'd been working in and around the system. And I have seen some real change over those decades. Perhaps not enough and not fast enough, but real the awareness of the causes and the devastating consequences of mass incarceration, the damage done by faulty forensic science and forensic fraud, and by the investigatory tactics used for generations in interrogation rooms and lineups that actually increased the risk of the wrong person being convicted. And maybe most importantly, the way it finally dawned on people, and by this I mean mostly white people, that black Americans got a very different kind of justice, if you could call it that, from the police, the courts, and the law itself than what white people got. I can distinctly remember the moment in October of 1985. It was real, a real, literal, split-screen moment for everyone watching television when the country watched black people erupt in cheers when O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of murdering his wife and a friend, with the other side of the screen showing horrified, open-mouthed white people simply stunned. And I also very vividly remember, and who doesn't, the ice-cold look on the face of police officer Derek Chauvin as he murdered George Floyd, kneeling on his neck with his hand in his pocket, looking maybe a little annoyed, like he was having to wait a little too long for his lunch at Subway. I remember the anger that erupted and the way that, finally, a lot of white people got it. 
But in all of this looking back, there's one change that might be the greatest one of all in my professional lifetime. Because that change, it helped bring many of these other challenges to the system to light. It clearly helped illustrate the unequal impact that the system has on black lives. It was, in every real sense, an earthquake for the criminal legal system. That change began with the use of DNA in courts. The acceptance of DNA evidence and its use in the system is among the most consequential changes ever to hit the justice system. Now, how many news stories have you heard that sound like this one? Here's a recent one out of Denver from NBC News. The story of four separate murders committed by the same man in the Denver area, all at last linked through DNA. It was a day. We can finally have peace knowing who did this to my little sister. Forty years in the making. It is a great relief to our family to finally have this resolution. A resolution of four long unsolved murders of women, all killed between 1978 and 1981, three in Denver, one in Adams County. DNA work over the last nine years linked two of the killings in 2013, a third in 2015, and the fourth in 2018. This month, investigators matched all that DNA to this man, Joe Michael Irvin. Now, perhaps you are still surprised to hear me make such a huge claim for the significance of DNA in courts. After all, DNA is ultimately just another forensic tool. Isn't that true? I mean, maybe it's a better one than others, but how much better in the end, you might think? Well, to answer that question, a lot better. Light years better. Remember, when DNA first came on the scene, it was usually referred to as DNA fingerprinting. Fingerprinting being the gold standard for identification through the entire 20th century up to that point. We now know, of course, that fingerprinting has flaws. Big ones, too. But more to the point, DNA is astronomically more accurate and more rigorously defensible than anything else we have by orders of magnitude. Now, I don't want to claim too much here, so let me be real careful. DNA samples can still be contaminated, collected in a sloppy fashion, and therefore become just downright useless. And my friend and Pittsburgh neighbor, Dr. Mark Perlin, a geneticist, statistician, and medical doctor, and my guest on episode 57, has made it his life's work to show how DNA work can be improved using statistically driven methods. And using his methods, it's possible to do work that existing DNA protocols just don't allow. But the point remains, DNA has made guilt for certain crimes, impossible to escape. According to Dr. Perlin, what DNA actually stands for is do not acquit. But let me, let me just back up one more minute here. In my opinion, convicting the guilty, as significant as it is, is not the most important part of what DNA has done in criminal courts. Because just as this tool can convict the guilty, it can also exonerate the wrongfully convicted, by showing that the convicted person simply could not have done the crime. Just like you've heard news reports in which DNA findings result in a conviction, I know you've heard other ones 
like this. This is from Fox 13 TV in Tampa. For 37 years, Robert Dubois has proclaimed his innocence behind prison walls, even during the verdict decades ago. You don't know how tough it is. But now DNA evidence proves he was telling the truth the whole time. This afternoon, Hillsborough State Attorney Andrew Warren says Dubois was wrongly convicted. He plans to ask a judge to reverse his conviction and give him back his freedom. For 37 years, we've had an innocent man locked up for a crime that he did not commit, while the real perpetrator was never held accountable for this horrific murder. Now, in my opinion, this, my friends, this is where the real earthquake has been. If, like me, you've worked or still work in the criminal legal system, you know that lots of people claim they are innocent. Some of these people have outright confessed, not to jaywalking, but to murder or rape. Nobody confesses to murder if they didn't do it, right? I wouldn't do that. This other supposedly innocent person was positively identified by an eyewitness who said, I'll never forget that face for the rest of my life. This third innocent person went to jail when they matched his hair to hair found at the crime scene. So the point is that before DNA, nobody ever believed these claims of innocence. What DNA has done, what it has told us is that, wait a minute, some of these people were actually provably innocent. It could not have been this person that perpetrated the crime, even though he confessed. It could not have been the person who committed the sexual assault, despite the 100% certain identification. It could not have been the person whose genetic material found on the victim was not his. And the matching hairs, the bite marks, that kind of forensic work? Nope. DNA showed that a lot of what we thought of as forensic science wasn't science at all. Unless you include junk science. Now, there may be no more stubborn belief among people, whether they are police officers, prosecutors, judges, lay people, whoever, than no one who is innocent would ever confess to a crime they did not do. Well, a lot of people still believe that, but we know now for certain those people are wrong. They are holding on not to a belief in empirical facts, but to a religious belief it is provably incorrect. Even if most people who confess did do the crime, some people somehow are manipulated into confessing who have not done it. And we know that because of DNA-based exonerations. As the number of exonerations climbed, first a couple, then 10 in a year, then even 20 in a year, and then into the hundreds. We also, of course, saw evidence of that worst of all pattern that our system constantly shows. These system errors in interrogation, in lineups, all of those things resulting in wrongful convictions, they fell disproportionately on people of color. Today, we're perhaps not surprised by that, but back then, at the beginning of the DNA earthquake, this was more necessary evidence of what people of color had said for years, but what most other people did not yet believe. That's why I say this 
was an earthquake. It exposed so many different problems across the entire criminal legal system. It wasn't just that DNA assured conviction of some guilty folks. It wasn't even that DNA served to correct hundreds of wrongful convictions, as important as that was. It was more proof positive that some aspects of investigation, police work, and forensics simply did not work as we had already assumed. And all of that had to change. Our guest today, a returning guest, now plays the lead role in the organization that really created the DNA revolution. She'll help us take in the true scope of what has been accomplished, and she's got some thoughts to share with us now as she looks forward. Christina Swarns became executive director of the Innocence Project in 2020. The Innocence Project, founded in 1992, the first and still the premier organization devoted to the exoneration of the wrongfully convicted uses DNA evidence to free people and to work for change in the processes, procedures, and laws that cause these legal catastrophes to happen. Christina Swarns has had a sterling legal career even before coming to the Innocence Project. She led the New York office of the Appellate Defender and served as litigation director for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, Thurgood Marshall's law firm, prior to joining the Innocence Project as one of the very few Black women to argue in front of the Supreme Court. She argued and won Buck versus Davis in 2016, a challenge to the introduction of explicitly racially biased evidence in a Texas death penalty case. She was a guest here on Criminal Injustice to discuss that case in episode 34. We are really happy to have her back now as Executive Director of the Innocence Project. Christina Swarns, welcome back to Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. I am so excited to be back talking to you again. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Now, the Innocence Project... This group, this organization has set the standard for work in a crucial, maybe the most crucial space in the world of criminal legal reform, the exoneration of wrongfully convicted people. As of now, stretching all the way back to its beginnings, in how many cases has the Innocence Project won an exoneration? Great question. I just want to start out by saying, you know, when I gra- I graduated from law school in 1993, just a year after the Innocence Project was founded. And so I know and I remember what the system was like before the work of the Innocence Project really got started and changed re- the way the criminal legal system and ultimately the American public views the way our system of justice functions. So I can remember being a public defender in 1994 in Manhattan and understanding that even if I thought that my I had an innocent client, there was going to be, you know, it was very difficult to get a judge, much less a prosecutor, to even entertain that reality. Amen. Right? Yes. At that time, the mantra I heard all the time was do the crime, do the time, right? There was just not any understanding or appreciation of the breadth of the phenomenon of wrongful conviction. Oh, I know that you'd have people say, oh, they're all, they all say they're innocent. They're in there for a reason. Why would you get, why did they get arrested if they didn't do something wrong? Right. right. It was this 
global skepticism of, you know, uh, of people who were incarcerated and, and an assumption that if you had been arrested, then, you know, then you did something wrong and you were exactly where you belonged. And so I have had the privilege, like through my legal career of watching and sort of like, sort of having a front row seat of the impact of the, the Innocence Project and its work. Uh, so, you know, a year before I graduated from law school, they are founded. And then over the next 30 years, you know, this organization frees and exonerates 237 people. Um, but more importantly, right, by doing that work, by using science to undisputedly establish the innocence of people who had been through the system and had been, you know, properly, air quotes, you know, convicted by judges, by juries, and showing, right, without question, through science, that those people were, wrong, were innocent and were wrongfully convicted, you know, this organization literally turned the criminal legal system on its head. Um, judges, prosecutors, juries, defenders, right, all of us had to begin to look at the work we were doing with fresh eyes, and we had to really reconsider the approaches that we were taking in terms of how we were litigating these cases, how, what laws made sense, what laws didn't make sense, and how we were going to approach the criminal legal system, you know, in its entirety. And so I got to see and experience, right, through my career, how the Innocence Project changed the, transformed the American criminal legal system. Um, and it really was that deep. Um, it, it, so the, the individual cases are themselves startling and and almost uh, uh, heartbreaking over exactly. and over and over. But the, the collective impact exactly. uh, is almost hard to estimate. Let's just take one measure. How many... Uh, how with all these hundreds of people who have were wrongfully convicted, how many years of imprisonment does that represent? Three thousand six hundred and seventy years, David. Three thousand six hundred and seventy years. It's beyond astounding. Comprehension. Beyond. Astounding. Astounding. It, it is really something to think about. Uh, and some people were exonerated even off death row, were they not? Absolutely. And so, you know, I had the honor of representing. Uh, so over the course of my career, I spent some time in your state in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. working for the uh, Federal Defender Capital Habeas Unit, my second job out of law school. And I had the privilege of actually representing Nick Yaris, who uh, was the first death sentence prisoner in Pennsylvania to be exonerated by DNA evidence. So yes, absolutely. Um, there were lots of folks across the country who have been exonerated and freed from death row, people who came within, you know, days, hours of execution in this country have been exonerated. And that is, you know, it, it is, is almost something that belongs in a movie and has been in some movies, of course, Absolutely. but it's real life. It's it people's lives and, and, and their futures just being uh, destroyed. And this has changed their lives. And with it, as you say, the entire system. Now, the organization itself, the Innocence Project is based in New York. Um, but there are innocence projects now all over the country, the one in Pennsylvania, for instance, uh, but but they're all over the place. What's the relationship between the Innocence Project in New York uh, and these many other innocence projects all over the country? Great, great question. So there are 68 independent innocence projects across the country and all the, and the world. And together, we are one of them. And together, we are a part of a affiliation called the Innocence Network. 
The Innocence Project, my organization is the headquarters of uh, the Innocence Network. And so in addition to sort of obviously working with collaboratively with our colleagues across the country, uh, the Innocence Project also has a network support unit that runs the Innocence Network Conference, that coordinates Wrongful Conviction Day, and also provides sort of capacity building and sustainability support for the individual organizations across the country. Because we really recognize that the breadth of the problem of wrongful conviction in this country requires more than any one organization can do by itself. Yes. So it's our you know, obligation to sort of support and empower and lift up the other organizations across the country so that we can free and exonerate as many people as we humanly possibly can. Yeah. So this network operates all over the place yes. um, and even in other countries. That's right. Uh, and DNA has always been sort of the centerpiece of the work. Uh, is that still true, do you think? So DNA is a huge, has been a huge, well, has been the work of the Innocence Project, right? Since our, since we are founded, we really have focused our work, our exoneration work on uh, using DNA to conclusively prove innocence. But we are aware acutely, right, that is only a small portion of the wrongful conviction story. You know, DNA, in order for to get a DNA exoneration, you have to have biological evidence, right, that can be, that yes. from which you could extract DNA um, that, you know, of the perpetrator, right? Um, and in so many cases of wrongful conviction, there just aren't, there isn't going to be the kind of DNA evidence that can be used to exonerate people. And so in order for us as an innocence community, for my organization as an innocence project, to really get at and demonstrate right to the public the real breadth of the problem of wrongful conviction in this country, we really have to go beyond right this the narrow subset of cases which is reflected in the DNA exoneration and look at the other cases as well, right? Do the investigation, you know, get uh, the, the other kinds of expert witnesses involved and show, you know, how many other people there are in this country who are wrongfully convicted and not just those who have DNA evidence in their cases. Yeah, it's so important. The Pennsylvania Innocence Project really focuses almost entirely on non-DNA cases. Right. So right. many of these uh, organizations in the broader network could have slightly different missions and outlooks, but all are focused on the question of wrongful convictions and righting those individual wrongs, as well as the policy-oriented work of changing the law. Can you talk a little bit about that? What's been the uh, the mission of the Innocence Project uh, more broadly? In other words, do you you know you work on lineups, work on interrogation, things like that? Yeah, I think that you know I thank you for asking because I think one of the the most powerful you know aspects of the work of the Innocence Project is that from its inception, pretty much you know it was not enough for us to say we're going to free, you know, as many individual people as we can. And that is super important, but more equally important and really almost more important is for us to stop the problem in the first place, right? We want to right. make sure that no more people are wrongfully convicted. There's nobody else spends 10, 20, 30, 40 years in prison for a crime they didn't commit, which is why we have dedicated, you know, resources and staff and capacity to not only free and exonerate people, but also to, to do policy reform. So we have a policy team that goes state by state, 
you know, to try to use the lessons of the exoneration cases to change the law to prevent future injustices. So what does that mean? That means, for example, we know that a significant portion of the DNA exonerations involve eyewitness identifications, right? Yes. We, you and I know this, right? That every single person, right? I, even me, and if I try to, you know, if I don't talk myself out of it, am convinced that if I am, you know, a victim of a robbery, I'm going to really do my best to focus on the, you know, all of the details. And I'm going to go into the police station and I'm going to say, I know who did it. And the, what I know is I'll probably be wrong <laughs> or there's a good chance that I'm going to be wrong because mm-hmm. I know from the work done by the Innocence Project that the stress of the circumstances that will make it hard for me to make an identification. If the perpetrator is holding a gun, I know that my eyes are going to go to the gun and not to the person's face, right? There are all these factors that I know now, right, because of the work of the Innocence Project will make it really hard for me to make an ID accurately. So the Innocence Project has taken the lessons from the wrongful identification cases and said, like, what can we learn and how can we change things to make sure that people aren't going into court and making, you know, not, you know, not intentionally, right? But not unintentionally misidentifications. And so we have promoted, you know, the kinds of reforms and the kinds of policies and practices that we know will increase the likelihood of accurate identification. So for example, instead of having a lineup, right, a traditional lineup, right, the thing in the movies, Mm -hmm. exactly, right, sequential identification is we learn more accurate. So looking at one person at a time, and it's like, is this him? Yes or no, right? Okay, move on to another person. Is this him? Yes or no. So when you have people lined up, we, we realize you just make comparisons. Which of these six people looks most looks the like most like him? Yeah, because somebody does. Exactly. Yeah. So uh-huh. you pick the person in that lineup who looks most like, right? And if you do it one by one, each time you're like, is that him? No, that's not him. And so you get a better, more accurate outcome. And so these are the kinds of reforms, for example, that we have promoted from the lessons that we've learned in the exoneration cases. And th- that is such a great example, too, because the science backs it up. And the science had actually been there for some time. I can remember learning about the science back when I was in law school and yet people didn't believe it until we got cases where, you know, along comes the victim and she says, I'm a hundred percent sure this is the guy who sexually assaulted me. And that man goes to jail. And then eight years later, here comes DNA and the DNA says it wasn't him. Exactly. As certain as the poor victim was, exactly. it wasn't her fault. And it's that kind of turnaround that's happened. And you, we've seen these kinds of reforms take place in eyewitness identification, but also in interrogation techniques right. Uh, right. across multiple things. Maybe you could think of one case that really sticks out to you that the project is handling now uh, that makes a particularly good example. Yeah. You know, right now we are involved, actively involved in the Melissa Lucio case. Uh, Melissa Lucio is on death row in Texas. She actually has a pending uh, execution date for April 27th. So it's a really, really serious case um, to which we are dedicating an enormous amount of time and our resources. Uh, Miss Lucio horrifyingly has been convicted of the murder of her two-year-old daughter, uh, when in reality, what we have, our investigation shows is that the, the, the child um, was a victim of an accident. You know, days before she uh, tragically died, uh, she fell down, uh, she fell down some stairs. And then ultimately, we think 
And the evidence shows that the scientific evidence will support that that death was a product of the fall. Unfortunately, Miss Lucio was, you know, and this happens so many times, you know, when her daughter died, she was questioned by police. She was distraught. Um, she was subjected to, you know, prolonged interrogation right after, right? Her Real risk child, factor. Yeah. Right. Right after her own child died, she also had a history of abuse, domestic abuse and sexual assault, which made her particularly vulnerable to right to pressure, likely to sort of, you know, admit to something she didn't do. She had all of the risk factors. And that's exactly what happened. She wound up making a statement that incriminated herself. And so we are actively fighting right now, right, to get um, the courts and the district attorney and the governor of Texas to re-examine this case, to lift, of course, the execution date and give us the opportunity to prove uh, Melissa Lucio's innocence. Uh, because otherwise we will really face the real prospect of seeing an innocent person executed in Texas. That is, uh, that is really astounding. And it's coming so soon. Yes. Uh, um, how often is it that the Innocence Project ends up representing a, a woman? I have the feeling that that's probably not the usual. It's not the usual, actually. You're right. You know, the overwhelming majority of our clients are men, but we definitely do represent women. Uh, we, we also, I can name um, a couple right now, right? We represent Darlie Routier in Texas, and we have, you know, represented Rosa Jimenez as well, who was also uh, recently freed on the basis of scientific evidence showing that the crime for which she was convicted was actually a tragic accident. Um, so we do, we do represent women as well, but they are definitely the minority. Wow. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Christina Swarns. Uh, she is our once and now present guest. Uh, she is now the uh, executive director of the Innocence Project in New York. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, we're back. It's David Harris on Criminal Injustice, and our guest is Christina Swarns. Ms. Swarns is the executive director of the Innocence Project. We last talked to her after she had argued a case in the U.S. Supreme Court, and now she's back to talk with us about the exoneration of the innocence the work that the Innocence Project does. Let me ask you something a little bit different, Christina. As you considered the opportunity to become the executive director of the Innocence Project, did you think about, did it make a difference to you uh, to, that this was an opportunity for an African-American, particularly for a black woman to lead this very important organization that's done so much in the system? Yeah, you know, I came on board just around the time that George Floyd was murdered. I think I accepted uh, the offer, uh, you know, to join and run the um, Innocence Project right around that time. And so, you know, these issues were sort of front and center uh, for the country, for the organization. And so I do think it was important. It was, you know, I think there is no conversation about criminal justice that can be untethered from race. And so I think Amen. national criminal justice reform organization doing work at the level and at the prominence of the Innocence Project, I think it does send a message and it speaks volumes um, to have a black woman run the organization and speak for the organization publicly. 
Um, I think it's important sort of globally, but I think it's also important, you know, for the communities who are most impacted ultimately, right, by the criminal legal system to see someone that looks like them, right, speaking out right. and advocating for reform. So yeah. I did absolutely think it was important. So take us into how the Innocence Project actually has uh, the, the big impact in the questions of racial justice that we've all heard so much about. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's tempting to think, well, they just get the cases in, uh, they represent who is innocent or saying they're wrongfully convicted. How could they even select for race? What's, what difference does it make? They're working on the issues. It must have a much deeper impact than that. Well, ab absolutely, right? The numbers tell the story, right? I think people do think, you know, well, you know, whoever is innocent is innocent and you, and you get them out. But the numbers tell a, a more significant story about the role of race here, right? What we know is 58% of people who have been uh, wrongfully convicted were black, 33% were white, you know, 7% Latinx and 2.3 or so percent Asian and Native American. Um, and not just it's not just that African-Americans are disproportionately represented among those who are wrongfully convicted. We also know it's harder, fascinatingly, to get a black person exonerated. It takes longer, literally. To wow, get a black is, that, is that a fact? It is, it is. So if a um, black person, it will spend uh, three years longer in prison uh, than a similarly situated white person before they are exonerated. And a black person will spend 4.5 years longer in prison than a similarly situated white person uh, before they are exonerated. So race is playing a role, right? Not only right at the front end of the system where you know decisions are being made by police officers and prosecutors, right? Evaluations of evidence, evaluations of claims of innocence are being made at the front end of the system. And we can see, right, that race is playing a role there, but also at the back end of the system, you know, when folks like me and my organization step in and say, you know, we need, we, we can show you that this person is, is innocent, right? Race is still like, there's a thumb on the scale for those people as well, because it's taking us longer. We have to fight harder for those folks to get, to get freed. So, you know, for us as an organization, I think first and foremost, right, it has to be named and acknowledged that race and racism is playing a role in the criminal legal system, including um, in terms of this work of, of exonerations and wrongful convictions. And we have to sort of not only acknowledge it, but lean into, um, you know, solutions just the way we have historically, like following the leads of the cases. We want to do the same here with respect to the way that race plays a role in a wrongful conviction. Fascinating. You know, my outburst there was not so much that I, I'm, I'm surprised yeah. because everything uh, is, is tilted differentially uh, by race in the criminal legal system, but that it actually could be measured. Uh, Crazy. That, that's an astounding thing. It's so it, as you look forward now, uh, you've had some time to get your feet on the ground and see what the organization is doing. I understand that you're looking at some changes in approach, maybe taking some non-DNA cases, maybe other things. So what, what do you think? So we are definitely going to start taking some non-DNA cases. Um, and again, that's really just about recognizing the realities of wrongful conviction in this country. For us, it's important, right? This is an organization that was founded to address the problem of innocent people being wrongfully convicted in this country. It's just 
sort of uh, leaning into the reality that wrong, innocent people are wrongfully convicted that they can't be exonerated by DNA. And so we consider it our obligation uh, to step into that space, to take on those cases and to begin slowly but surely, right, to, to work on uh, exonerating people, you know, through other mechanisms than DNA. I, I will also say, right, we will come up with sort of protocols around which cases we're going to take and from where, and those will come out eventually, but we will absolutely be doing uh, that kind of work going forward. So interesting. Now, let me let me ask you this. I, I know there are some people out here thinking the following, because I've heard it before, um, that as, as uh, shocking as the numbers are of people exonerated, both by the Innocence Project that you had and by state projects, there are many others, uh, uh, I mean, that out there uh, in the system as a whole, far more and that the number of people exonerated is actually quite tiny. Mm-hmm. And therefore, this isn't the, the, the large problem that folks might think, uh, that it is actually a very small problem. Every uh, man-made uh, system has errors it makes, and you figured out ways to detect some of them, but it really isn't as big a problem as all that. What's your reaction? So uh, my reaction is, I think what the the story of the innocence does is it tells people, it sort of shines a light on the functioning of the system, period, hard stop. Um, And that implicates, right, how the system is handling everyone that comes through, right? If the system is treating innocent people as horribly as it is, Right. And there is no there. You know, you just speak to the those who have been exonerated and they will tell you what they that experience was like. Right. You can magnify that. Right. A thousand times by how the system is treating those who don't have evidence of innocence. Right. So I think what we do not only is shine a light on how the system is functioning, we are also able to promote reforms that aren't just limited. Right. To those who are innocent. Right. They affect and improve the justice system sort of more broadly. And that's really what it's about, right? It's important for our criminal legal system to work properly, period, right? We believe and we say out loud, right? We have the finest system of justice in the world, Um, but we need to make that true. And I think that the, the, the innocence and the experiences of the innocence expose the failings of the criminal legal system in a way I think that the other stories simply have not and have the power to demand and uh, command reform for everyone. I have to come to grips with it. We just have to. So uh, let me ask you to cast your your eyes and your thoughts ahead. Where do you see the Innocence Project in three, five years? You can pick the the interval. Yeah. So I think one of the big things we're going to lean into going forward is the way in which sort of some of this emerging technology is, is is ensnaring innocent people or is, is mis, you know, improperly used um, to ensnare innocent people or just is just being improperly used in the criminal legal system. You know, first and foremost, we think as an organization that the criminal legal system needs to think carefully about the kinds of technology and air quotes science uh, that is used in the criminal legal system. And that means we need to consider, you know, whether, you know, the kinds of technologies that are coming into the system are ethical, are they legal? Um, What are the social implications? And, you know, do they impact racial justice? Are there racial justice implications? 
Second, right, we know, right, that some of the technology that's coming into the system, facial recognition software, the shot spotter, um, and other kinds of artificial intelligence, you know, aren't accurate, right? They aren't, uh, they don't have the kind of validity that they should have to be used as a basis for convicting anybody. Um, and so we're going to spend some time sort of focusing on this new, uh, this new technology. And also I will note that I think a lot of times this new technology ensnares people in misdemeanor cases, right? And so uh -huh. we think it's important, right? That's equally important, right? Because it's ensnaring people in misdemeanor cases in larger numbers, right? And so we want to spend some time sort of urging this, the reform and screw, reform of the system around this uh, artificial intelligence and urging real clear ethical evaluation of what we are allowing to go in the system and what we can say is appropriate for the system to rely on in, um, in, in imposing a conviction. And so this new technology is scary, it is unreliable, and we're gonna work really hard on those kinds of issues going forward. I wish you the best of luck going forward. Uh, you've you've inherited an organization that has done great work, and it's obvious you got a lot of great work ahead. Thank you, David. Well, it's my pleasure. Christina Swarns is the executive director of the Innocence Project, still the first, and the premier organization fighting wrongful convictions in the United States. Thanks a lot for being my guest. It was my absolute pleasure. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from Bloomberg Law, the Indiana Lawyer, and the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer Alan Stout of Angola, Indiana. Lawyers representing their clients owe those clients a duty of loyalty, and they have the duty of, in the language of the first ABA Code of Ethics, quote, zealous representation within the bounds of the law. We are all probably able to think of lawyers who do a pretty good job with that zealous part, maybe a bit too much. They might have an aggressive approach or manner, maybe use what one would call scorched earth tactics. Some people want a lawyer like that. It's certainly possible to hear people who have that kind of lawyer say, quote, sure, this guy's an asshole, but he's my asshole. That's why I hired him. Well, to be clear, I believe this kind of approach is unnecessary and damages the legal profession standing with the public at the very least. But it's that second part, within the bounds of the law, that gets lost with some lawyers. And that is where we find Lawyer Stout. Lawyer Stout represented a man in a case in which the man was accused of harassing a woman. Stout's client and the woman had been in a relationship, but no longer, and the woman now wanted a court-ordered protection order from the man. She had requested a protective order from Lawyer Stout's client, and Lawyer Stout scheduled a deposition of the woman, which Indiana law apparently entitles him to do. 
on the day of the deposition, that, of course, is a sworn questioning session of a witness under oath by a lawyer with every word taken down by a court reporter, usually in the lawyer's office, the woman came to Lawyer Stout's office, where the deposition was to take place. The woman did not have a lawyer of her own. She was alone. Nothing legally wrong with that. It's just worth noting that she had no one in her corner as she faced a morning of questioning from Lawyer Stout. Everyone assembled in a room in Stout's office and sat at the table. Lawyer Stout, the woman, a court reporter, and others employed in Stout's office. There, sitting on that table, face up for everyone to see, were three 8 by 10 inch enlargements of intimate photographs of the woman, which she had apparently sent to the man during the course of their relationship. In an opinion issued later, Stout, quote, displayed the photographs facing up on the table for all in attendance to see, close quote. It's not hard to imagine the shock and discomfort the humiliation of the woman coming alone and without any ally into this place of power and first thing to be confronted with intimate sexual images of herself only ever meant to be seen by her then intimate partner. In case anyone missed the point of lawyer Stout's little display, Stout then asked, quote, why do women who seek the aid of the court send these kinds of pictures to men. Close quote. That statement right there. Think of what that says. You're a slut. Sluts don't get justice. Sluts get shamed. And this means we can ruin your life, humiliating you right here, but not just here in this office, anywhere we want. And just in case anyone missed that point, Stout went on. According to the Indiana Supreme Court, Stout, quote, then asked her if she still intended to pursue a protective order or whether there would be a, quote, better way to handle things than for her to be, quote, drug through and, quote, exposed in court. You get it? It would be better to drop this because if you don't, I'm going to drug you through the mud using these slutty photos. The woman said, remember, she's there alone, unrepresented. She just wanted Stout's client to stop harassing her. Here's what happened next. I can't do better than this longish quote from the ABA Journal News Online, which itself quotes from the Indiana Supreme Court's opinion. Here it is. Stout then ended the deposition and told the woman that the court reporter, quote, will transcribe this to final form, submit it to the court, and it then becomes a public record. There's a way to stop that, but otherwise, with the matter still pending, we'll have to submit it to the court and attend a hearing, which will be a very public hearing as well. The woman then said she wanted to dismiss the case, which she did immediately after the deposition. Then this also from the ABA Journal News. Afterwards, Stout bragged to an associate that he had secured the dismissal by threatening to make the photos part of the public 
record. Well, where does one start? Hey, you're a pugnacious lawyer, a real fighter for your client. You're the toughest guy in the courtroom or in this litigation willing to twist hard to get a good result for the person you represent. Okay, you be you. But Lawyer Stout went further. He threatened the opposing party who was not represented that he would use the court's proceedings and processes not to fight for his client's legal rights, but to publicly humiliate her and ruin her life by exposing her, literally showing images of her naked body in a way that she only wanted to convey privately, showing those images to the world. If she wouldn't drop her legal action against his client, he would use the legal system to damage her in the most humiliatingly public way he could. There are names for these kinds of statements and actions. And no, I'm not thinking about words like tough litigator or even scorched earth tactics. I'm sure listeners can come up with their own descriptions. Lawyer Stout later faced disciplinary charges for this conduct. The charges made their way all the way to the Indiana Supreme Court, and I've read you some of that court's words here. The court affirmed the judgment of the disciplinary hearing officer, finding that Stout's conduct violated rules banning false statements of material fact, violating rules against conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, and violating rules against conduct that is prejudicial to the administration of justice. According to the court, Lawyer Stout's deception, quote, was part of an intentional and purposeful plan he devised to coerce and bully the petitioner into dismissing her case under threat of having her intimate photos explored, close quote. Like I said, I think one could say something stronger than that, but it'll do. What won't do at all is the penalty given to Lawyer Stout. A 90-day suspension from practice. He's not disbarred. He'll be back. As the editor and writer of this feature, and as a human being, let me say as clearly as I can, not nearly enough. Are you kidding? This lawyer should take a few months off? If you actually care about conduct that is prejudicial to the administration of justice... This isn't right. Would you, justices of the Indiana Supreme Court, feel this is acceptable if that woman were your wife or daughter or sister or mother? This shamefully brief penalty just adds injury to this woman's already injured life. And Stout gets an extra-long vacation. And that closes another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And with it, we wrap up another edition of Criminal Injustice. Check out our website, that's criminalinjusticepodcast.com, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. (laughs) 